Hey, what up? This is Shegs from ShegsAndStuff.com, and this week's blog post is titled, When Love Goes Too Far, part five of our blog series through the book of Revelation. To find out more about the blog, please visit the site at www.shegsandstuff.com. And on the site, through biblical teaching and encouragement, we remind you weekly that God not only loves you, but still likes you. So picture this fictional scenario. It's a rainy Sunday morning at the 10 a.m. worship service of a local church. Now, in spite of the weather, the church is actually packed full. An email was sent to the congregation earlier in the week that an important, possibly church-altering announcement will be made at the morning service. And so the church is full. A nervous anticipation fills the air as the worship team finishes their worship set and the upcoming events video is wrapping up. Everyone sitting in the congregation is eager to hear what this new news is. Picture the senior pastor walking to the stage as he straightens his notes on the pulpit. His face looks a little somber. He doesn't open up with his usual humor, but with a pensively low tone. Church, I, um, we, something important has come up that we have to talk about, he says. There's something important he has to say is a very personal letter he has received from Jesus Christ for his church. Now, this particular church exists during a time period in history where Jesus clearly and powerfully communicates to his church through apostles and prophets. The letter that the pastor holds in his hands was hand-delivered to him the previous night by an apostle who walked closely with Jesus. Senior pastor at first hesitates and then wipes tiny beads of sweat from his face. His read and he has read and reread the letter a dozen times in the last 12 hours. He knows its shockingly troubling contents by heart, which makes what he's about to do even much harder. I um, we, we we received an important word from the Lord last night, he says. As soon as he says that, excited cheers and applause and a few woo-woo resound through the sanctuary, but the pastor hushes the congregation. He knows that the letter in front of him does not call for celebration. He's spoken with the other senior pastors in the region, the pastors of the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, those cities, and he knows that those guys received similar letters from Jesus with contents pertaining to their respective congregations. It pains him deeply as he takes another look at the report card Jesus just sent his church. And with that, he says... Folks, I don't know how else to say this, but to simply read what the Lord Jesus has sent us through his apostle, John. The pastor explains with a deep sigh. As he clears his throat one last time, he finally opens up the letter and begins reading. To the members and leaders of the church of Tyre, these are the words of God's son, the one whose eyes pouring fire blaze and standing on feet of furnished fired bronze. I see everything you're doing for me. Impressive. The love and the faith, the service and persistence. Yes, very impressive. You all are getting better at it every day. A few congregation members interrupt him as they excitedly yell out, Amen! Praise the Lord! But also unsure of why their pastor wasn't more excited about Jesus' greetings. Looking up from his notes to his wife, the pastor nods, at his wife, and she nods back empathetically, encouraging him to press on. 
Rallying his emotions once again, he looks back at his notes, then in the direction of a particular group of congregants seated on the far left front section of the church and directs these next words to them. But why do you let that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, mislead my dear servants in the cross-denying, self-indulging religion? I gave her a chance to change her ways, but she has no intention of giving up a career in the God business. So I'm about to lay her low, along with her partners, as they play their sex and religion games. And the bastard offspring of their idol whoring, I will kill. Shock and awe doesn't even begin to describe the reaction of the congregation at the pastor's reading. Terrified looks fill every face, and surprisingly, a few people immediately burst into silent sobs. The Holy Spirit had clearly already begun stirring the hearts of some folks about their involvement in this matter. While returning his concerned glare to the rest of the congregation, the pastor continues reading. Then every church will know that appearances do not impress me. I, the Lord, x-ray every motive and make sure you get what's coming to you. Now the rest of you Thai tyrants who have nothing to do with this outrage, who scorn this playing around with the devil that gets paraded as profundity, be assured I will not make life any harder for you than it already is. Hold on to the truth you have until I get there. And here's the reward I have for every conqueror, everyone who keeps at it, refusing to give up. You will rule the nations. The shepherd king rule as firm as an iron staff. Your resistance, fragile as clay pots. This was the gift that my father gave me. I pass it along to you, and with it, the morning star. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. And with that, the pastor folds up the note, puts it back in his jacket, and walks off the stage. Okay. So let's talk about this for a second. Now, can, can you imagine... Being a congregant in this church on that Sunday morning when this letter was read. Like picture the woman, uh, the woman who was the main culprit in this letter that Jesus has written. Picture picture what she's thinking. Imagine the trepidation she must have been going through as she heard those words. Or, or perhaps her obstinacy, right? Like imagine the rest of the congregation looking around in confusion, wondering if they were guilty or caught up in this Jezebel cult as Jesus describes it. I assure you, this was one worship service nobody would ever forget because this church would never be the same after that letter. Now, you want to know what's even more troubling than that scenario, than that what I just painted? It's the fact that though this church setting is a fictional scenario, the actual letter is not. What I just read to you in this fictional church is actually the message translation of the same letter that Jesus sent to a very real church in the very real ancient city of Thyatira in the book of Revelation chapter 2 verse 18 to 29. So this is this is this is definitely a hard letter whether you read it in the NIV or the message or the New Living Translation or the New King James. It's a difficult letter. In fact, it's not the kind of letter that any church or any Christians of that matter would ever want to receive from Jesus, right? It's a tough letter. But to be fair, Jesus does commend this church for doing a few things right, four of them to be exact. So it isn't all bad, even though it's mostly bad. So let's look at what they're doing well before we look at what's going really wrong. So first of all, in verse 19, Jesus commends them for being a 
hardworking church. He says, I know your works, right? Or I know your, your deeds. So, so this, this church was a church that never struggled to get volunteers. You've heard it said that 20% of the church does 80% of the work. Well, in Tyra, they were so hardworking that each congregant served in at least one ministry capacity or another. And so they had a 100% volunteer rate. Like, like they served, folks served in children's ministry, youth ministry, and women's ministry, and, and with the homeless. They, they hosted a canned and, and good, good, good collection for the community. They partnered with the nonprofit organizations in their city to care for the needy, regardless of religious affiliation. They were the kind of church in Taitaira. They were the kind of church that homeless people sent their homeless friends to. In fact, Jesus says at the end of verse 19 that they were presently doing more than they did when they first launched as a church. So they got much kudos there. They were a hardworking church. Two, Jesus says they were a loving church, right? He says, I not only know your deeds, but I know your love. So, so this church, once again, is a church that everyone in the community felt welcomed in. Like these folks not only cared and loved one another, but they were the kind of church that you would feel super comfortable bringing your non-Christian and even gay friends to. Like the, the thigh tiring church was, they were seeker sensitive and super sensitive about everyone's feeling. They loved people without regard for race, gender, or creed, and were tolerant of everything and everyone, which we will discover in a moment might not always be a good thing. And then third and fourthly, they were commended for being a church that was full of faith and that they excelled at service and perseverance. So this means, once again, that they were not afraid to take bold leaps for the gospel. At a minimum, it means they were perhaps a praying church, right? They prayed a lot. More importantly, I think perseverance means that they were not easily broken or shaken even in times of difficulty. And so based on these four commendations from Jesus Christ himself, one has to admit that on the surface, man, this wasn't a shabby church, right? Like if you visited the Church of Tai Tyra on any given Sunday or checked out their website or online videos, man, you'd be impressed with them that you might actually think about switching church churches to, to start going to their church because they were such a caring, loving, and tolerant bunch. However, there is a point where being loving and tolerant lands you in a bad spot. You see, Jesus had a different point of view of what was really happening in that church. Literally, he had a different point of view. And so looking with his fiery, blazing eyes that have the ability to see past or see through every veil, he sees, Jesus sees something that's very disturbing that causes him to say, hey folks, good job at those four things I just commended you for, but there are some serious issues in your midst that you have failed to address, or in his own words in verse 20, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, to give you some perspective of what's happening in the Titanian congregation, consider the fact that the diagnosis that they received from Jesus sounds awfully similar to, the, to that of the church in Pergamum. So both churches had ill-intentioned people in their congregation who were teaching people to engage in sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols at the local pagan feast. Now, the church in Tyra, however, had taken their sin a step further than the folks in Pergamum. You see, whereas the folks in Pergamum may have been ignorant to the deceit of the false teachers in their midst, or perhaps too intimidated to confront them, the church in Tyra was fully aware and openly tolerating the false teachers so that they continued unhindered in their deception. 
In fact, listen to Jesus say it himself in verse 20. Jesus says, but but I have this, in spite of all you're doing well, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. So, it could be said that if the Christians in Pergamum were dating the false teachers, then the congregants in Thyatira were already married to them. Like if the church in Pergamum was occasionally engaged in sexual foreplay with the false teachers, then the church in Thyatira had already engaged in sexual intercourse multiple times with the false teachers and had actually produced several babies in church. Now I'm speaking metaphorically here, right? Just so you get the picture of what Jesus is saying. Specifically, the Titans had been infiltrated by a spiritually dangerous woman who had gathered around herself quite a following. This woman was claiming to be some sort of prophetess who had divine access to spiritual truth that no one else was seeing. And this apparently impressed many people in the church as they continued to allow her to increase in influence and prominence. So the folks in Titan were such a loving, accepting, and tolerant church that they allowed what was clearly an unholy union to continue happily ever after. In fact, this woman grew so bold that after a while, man, she just cast her pretension aside and blatantly began teaching those she had lured into her cause Satan's so-called secrets, according to verse 24. And so it's for this reason that Jesus takes such a harsh and severe tone with the church's tolerance of her. Now, this woman, this woman in question is the one that Jesus refers to as Jezebel. Jezebel is clearly not a real name, but Jesus assigns it to her to reveal to the tie tyrants her true nature. The story of the real Jezebel can actually be found in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 16. And all you need to know about Jezebel is that she, she was a vicious, evil, crazy witch queen who violently imposed idol worship on the Israelites. And her idol of choice was a cult deity named Baal, B-A-A-L, whose worship involved all kinds of sexual degradation and lewdness. Well, in Tyra, this Jezebel-like woman was actually doing the same thing to her predecessor. She was aggressively seducing and misleading the church through sexual enticement and false teaching, all of which led many congregants to engage in spiritual adultery and very possibly actual adultery. So, let's take a moment here. And consider the intentions of this woman at this church and its relevance to our actions today as Christians. Because listen, Jesus is not playing nice with her anymore. You see, let's talk about us for a second. Because it's one thing for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to struggle with a sin that has a stronghold over our lives, right? I think grace is extended to us with that. But man, it's another thing to be the person importing that sin into the church and misleading others to engage in it. So my question is, is this, is that you? Like, are you a spiritual predator dressed as a sheep in Jesus's church? Are you knowingly spreading unbiblical teaching or enticing others in the church to engage in any form of sin or rebellion? Is that you? Because if that describes you, then you should know this. The Lord of the church, the Christ himself, the one whose eyes blaze like a fiery furnace, whose feet are as strong as burnished bras, he's onto your game. He is onto your game. Like you may have your present church fooled, but the one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs. 
He scoffs at you and will soon rebuke you in his anger and terrify you in his wrath. So check yourself because your time may be up. Now, incidentally, Jesus was actually incredibly gracious to this woman and her followers in the church. In fact, according to verse 21, he'd actually confronted her, or it appears like he's confronted her in the past and revealed to her her sin as well as giving her time to repent. But she had refused to turn from her sexual immorality. In fact, she has now reached, unfortunately, the point of no return. So judgment is inevitable for this Woman, severe judgment from God is inevitable. And what makes Jesus' judgment against her even more petrifying is the extent to which Jesus was going to carry it out. Look again at what he says in verse 21 to 23 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says to her, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And so I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and mind. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. <sighs> right? A little scary, right? Now, because of the terrifying nature of the judgment that Jesus pronounces on this woman and, and on the church and this woman, let me clarify what I believe Jesus is getting at here, because um, this is not a warning as much as it is an announcement of a judgment that, that that's already going to take place. Now, I don't believe Jesus is speaking to those of you believers or non-believers for that matter who have an addiction or a sin in your life that you're struggling with, you want to be free from, but you're just, man, you're, that, that's not who Jesus is speaking with or to. Jesus is speaking here to those of you, whether who, whether intentionally, whether willfully or unintentionally, are spreading your sinful trade to others within the church and are unrepentant about it. That's who he's speaking to. Note the play of words he uses in verse 22 when he speaks of casting her on a bed of suffering and striking dead to children that come from that affair. So in other words, he's saying the very sin that you are engaged in and unwilling to repent of and selling to other people will be the very source that you will be judged by. Jesus is saying the bed that you're laying on to commit adultery is the very bed you're going to die on. And when I'm done, everyone in the church will know that I can see past every facade. So make no mistake about it. Jesus is very involved and protective of his church because, man, she, 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 the church is still his bride. He hasn't changed his mind about that. And think about this. If he gave his life for the church, for her, can you imagine the extent that he would go to to keep her pure and safe? So there's a warning there for those who are misleading his church. Now, while Jesus was going to deal directly with the root source of the trouble in Tyra, the prophetess, there was, of course, still the issue of the rest of the congregation who turned a blind eye and allowed the errors to continue, even tolerated it. Now, clearly, those who were directly involved with the woman, those who committed adultery with her and actually produced children with her, uh, and the fruit of her false teaching, um, they were going to be dealt with. But, but I have to imagine that while the pastor, this imaginary pastor from earlier in the in the blog, um, this past, I'd imagine that there were many people in the congregation listening to their pastor and thinking to themselves, wait a minute, Jesus, but what about me? Like, like I have not engaged in these sins with those folks. Like I've been tempted 
and I strayed a few times and I dabbled in it, but I've repented and, and I haven't engaged in it since. So am I going to get swept away in judgment with everyone else? Right? There's some folks who are genuinely concerned that, hey, are we all going to get destroyed here? And so it's in response to this concern that Jesus writes what he says next in verse 24 to 29. And he says this, listen, he says, Now, I say to the rest of you in Tyre, to those of you who do not hold to her teaching, that's the false teaching, the Jezebel woman, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, part of the false teaching she was teaching. Jesus says to those folks, he says, I will not impose any other burden on you, except simply to hold on to what you already have until I come. And to the one who is victorious and done, uh, uh, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give the authority over nations, and that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I don't know what you heard when I read that, but what I find most encouraging, and you should find this encouraging too, about these words that Jesus writes is the fact that Jesus can tell, Jesus can tell apart those who are his from those pretending to be his. Like, like there's a parable of the weeds and the wheat in the gospel where Jesus says, listen, it, it may appear to humans that the church is messed up and, and, and some are, you know, Jesus is basically saying in that parable, in this passage, of, I know who are mine. I know who belongs to me. I know who's real. I know who's authentic. I know who's really mine and who doesn't believe. I, I know the fake pastor from the real pastor. And so Jesus is essentially saying that. He's saying that to his own who have remained faithful, I know who you are. I know what you're going through. And he even goes as far as to encourage them, saying, I will not impose any burden on you, but simply to urge you to keep doing what you've already been doing. I love that. That's so encouraging. Jesus is not looking to make your life any harder. He's not making it look things difficulty. Uh, he's not making things to, he's not looking to make things difficult for you. In fact, it brings to mind another statement that Jesus himself made during his time on earth in Matthew 11, verse 28, where he says, Come to me, all of you. All of you. Are you tired? Are you weary? Carrying heavy burdens, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. God is not a, he doesn't give you burden. He already carried the greatest burden, right? So that's his point here. So that's the first piece of good news for those who keep at it and remain faithful to him, who have not involved themselves in the Jezebel-like cult. The second encouraging news from Jesus is the promise and the future reward that will be given to those who are faithful to him. And he's essentially saying here that they will be given the authority to rule over nations, the right to serve as judges over the affairs of his coming kingdom, and something unique called the Morning Star. To really appreciate the incredible significance of these promises or these rewards, you need to understand that Jesus is speaking here of a thousand year period known as the millennial kingdom. So this millennial period is actually still in our future, right? The future of 2016, wherever that is. It, it, this period is still in our future and it'll be ushered in at the return, the second return of Jesus Christ, which is seven years after the rapture of the church. So, so right now, the next event of the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. After the rapture, there's a seven-year period of tribulation. At the end of that seven-year period, Jesus Christ returns at the Battle of Armageddon, and he will establish the millennial kingdom. It's that 
period that Jesus is speaking about, the period, that thousand-year reign on earth where every believer will rule alongside him as his representatives. And it's in this time and place that many of the promises of Scripture about prosperity and blessings, it's during that season that it'll be fully realized during the millennial kingdom. So, this means that as a reward for not signing up the Jezebel cult, and as a result of choosing to remain faithful to Christ in a tolerance-gone, corrupt culture, Christ is saying, if you remain faithful to me, um, I will entrust you with a governing office position to administer my justice over nations in that period. So did you catch that? Christ is reassuring you that based on your faithfulness, you, as a follower of his, will someday rule over nations. And there's a lot more to that. In fact, there's an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that gives us some insightful perspective on the extent to which believers will rule with Christ. According to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, it appears that followers of Jesus Christ on that day will not only be entrusted with governing human affairs, but even governing angelic affairs. Because 1 Corinthians 6, 3, Paul is speaking to his church and he says, why are you arguing with each other? Like, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So there's this sense of, man, God's going to entrust us with his rule. What a day that'll be. And the best part is that on that day, every believer who is in Christ will have a glorified, resurrected body, a resurrected, glorified mind, and the mind of Christ. Hence, we will not lack for wisdom on what to do or how to do it. Now, so that's the first promise. The second pro oh, the third promise really is, of course, the question of, of the morning star. Right? What's that about? Well, every biblical indi indication is that the phrase, the morning star, is a reference to Jesus Christ himself. In other words... You and I, on that day, as a result of being faithful to him and not selling out and not allowing tolerance to open dangerous doors in our churches and our lives, Jesus is saying, um, as a result of being faithful to him, we will have unprecedented access to him. So whereas today you may sometimes feel unsure if uh, unsure if Jesus heard your prayers or if he gets you, well, on that day, Jesus is saying you will have something tantamount to an all-access pass to meet with him. So on that day in the millennium, you, you will regularly see Christ face to face. You'll be able to run your ideas by him directly. You'll be able to chat with him over lunch at Panera Bread. Because yes, there will be Panera Bread in the millennium, right? Uh, you'll be able to seek his direct advice on matters. You'll be able to personally invite him to celebration you're hosting. And I mean, let your imagination run wild here. And it's as if Jesus himself were saying, listen, on that day, I will be there when you need me so much that while your prayers are still on your lips, I will hear you and answer you. And man, that's ultimately what our hearts long for, isn't it? Christ himself. So let's wrap this blog post, this podcast up with the big idea that I mentioned earlier. So listen, the loving grace of God covers all of our sins, all of it, right? And he and Jesus invites us daily to surrender our burdens to him. We trust in him for eternal life once, but we surrender to him daily. However, what may prove problematic in your relationship with God is if you are the source through which sin is being imported into the lives of other people. It's not unforgivable if you repent of it, but it's a big problem. Jesus expresses as much in Luke chapter 17, verse 1, when he says, There will always be temptations to sin, 
but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? Other versions say, but woe to anyone through whom sin comes. So I got to ask that question again. Is that you? Are you a spiritual predator dressed as a sheep among Jesus's flock? Are you knowingly spreading unbiblical teaching or enticing others and encouraging others to engage in a morality of false teaching? <laughs> Understand, again, that Jesus sees in high definition every motive, every action and activity that takes place under the roof of the church, in fact, under the sun. And in his great mercy, Christ will repeatedly call you to repent and surrender your sin to him. He'll even send people to you to just speak to you randomly about things in your life. But if you persist and stubbornly hold on to your sin and rebellion and you're unwilling to change, once again, your time may soon be up. The Lord is merciful and compassionate. He is slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. That's true. And while there is no sin that's so great that the cross of Jesus isn't greater than, there is a point of no return where unrepentance can and will lead to severe judgment. So a word to the wise as we wrap this up. If you are a sin importer, if you're the source of sin in the lives of others, cease your evil trade immediately. Otherwise, the Lord himself will do it for you. Well, I pray the peace of God over you this week. I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to light any area of your life that may be displeasing to him, that he would stir in you a great love for him. I pray that Jesus would stir in your heart a greater love for him and a, and a, and a yielding heart, a, a heart that's submissive to his leading, and that he would turn your heart back to him. He would cause you to love him more. I ask that he would lead and direct you all the days of your life. And so may God's peace settle over you in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Please drop by the blog when you get a chance, www.shedsandstuff.com to listen to the other four messages in this series. And to check out all the blog posts. God bless you. Have a great week. Oh, also, if you have listened this far, I know I sent this out last week, but I had a daughter this past Friday. My wife and I have um, a new girl. Her name is Rachel. And so um, her picture is on the blog. You can check that out. But I just, thanks for listening. And I just wanted to share that good news with you. God bless you. Have a good day.